Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Lawn Candor. I'm Rob, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill. Well, it's almost time for many of us to start thinking about spring cleaning. But for legal and compliance teams, you know, cleaning up data is becoming um, not just a harder, but an ongoing battle. With new cloud-based tools and applications, organizations are creating more data than ever. We all know that. And that, of course, is resulting in more risk, increased cost, you know, and slowing down e-discovery workflows. We're happy to have Erica Namath, Executive Director of Global Advisory Services at Lighthouse. She'll be joining us today to talk about creating you know, a good, sound data retention and deletion program, including how to do things like get shareholder buy-in. But before that conversation, we must first discuss sightings of radical brilliance. Of course, this is the part of the show where we bring you the latest news of noteworthy innovation and other acts of sheer genius. And Bill, what have we got today? We have a, an article out of the UK Institute of Cancer Research from September of 21 talking about scientists using AI to identify new drug combinations for children in what was previously deemed an incurable brain cancer. This, I mean, it's the kind of article you read that just it puts things in perspective for you and you really start to think about, you know, how silly it is that I'm looking for this document and all other documents like it when compared to the way they're using AI here. Uh, you know, they're, they're, really what this comes down to is it's just a massive cross-referencing exercise done by AI, which we see all the time in our space, right? But this is done... For looking at the success that various combinations of drugs have, have have had or success or lack thereof, what this does is AI sort of pointing doctors in the right direction for the right uh, alchemy uh, and combination of drugs to, to get it right. And they're seeing some incredible results. Yeah, it's really it's really amazing. You kind of think about how drug development works and you have, you know, different companies, you know, are pursuing drugs for different types of indications. There's a lot of um, information that's being written about those trials and about, you know, a lot of the research that's happening. This company, Benevolent AI, has sort of built its own AI drug discovery platform that takes all of those inputs you know, looks at what everyone else is doing and then suggests ways that maybe some of these ideas can be combined and um, come up with novel uh, solutions. And, you know, for brain cancer, especially where, you know, there are not a lot of great treatment options. This is um, just a great, I think, a great AI story. It's amazing. Like the, 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 their, their machine learning system is essentially read, quote unquote, read um, these scientific articles that allows them to ingest it. Uh, uh, digest it and then come up with the combination of drugs that they th that, that it thinks will work based on everything it's learned. It's the possibilities here are just endless. And it's 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 amazing because so often we read about, you know, AI and uh, combination with robotics and how we're going to be, uh, you know, part of the matrix soon. And I'm going to be plugged into a machine somewhere. Uh, and, and basically all hope is lost for humankind here. And really leveraging AI to to advance science and health. That's really it. it Again, incredibly touching, incredibly interesting, especially, of course, they tug on your heartstrings with, you know, childhood, uh, incurable childhood brain cancer, right? I mean, if, if you're going to tackle something, start with that. Yeah, exactly. 100% agree. Love seeing these these great AI stories. Yeah, I I, I love this article. It brought a, a smile to my face, especially knowing like, you know, what was once incurable is now curable thanks to thanks to AI. So really good article. Check it out if you if you get a chance. We're going to pivot now to our interview portion of the program and our conversation with Erica Namnith, as, as Rob said. We're going to dive into, you know, key steps for defensible deletion of data and how to get your organization on board because it does take your whole organization getting on board as you'll as you'll hear in the uh, in, in the interview. This one was really good. Erica's a genius. Genius, love working with her. Check it out. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting.
Hello, Erica, and welcome to Long Candor. Hey, in this new season, we're really trying to highlight um, and celebrate women in our industry. And one thing that we like to do to start this off is just to have you describe a little bit about your background. And we know that everyone has an interesting story about how they ended up in e-discovery. You know, we'd love to hear yours. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the short story there is that I got really lucky and, and can't take credit for it really at all. Um, I actually I studied linguistics in college and grad school, and I actually thought I wanted to be a college professor. But then after getting my master's degree, I came to the conclusion that the life of a professor just really wasn't for me. But it also didn't seem like there was really much out there for a linguist from a career perspective. I didn't know who was hiring linguist. So I decided not to continue on and I just left school behind. And then I bounced around from job to job trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, until the summer of 2005 when a former colleague of mine tracked me down and, was, and told me all about this amazing company called H5. Um, and according to her, this was a company where linguists were actually being hired to do linguistic-y things. Um, and at this point, at this point, I was working at Nordstrom selling makeup, and I was actually having a really great time with it. And so I really, I was like, I just, I don't know that I really want to get back into linguistics, and I ended up passing on it. Um, but then, fortunately for me, I came to my senses a few months later, and I thought, you know, actually, this could be a really amazing opportunity. So I went ahead and sent in my resume, and um, a few weeks later, I got hired. And I started off my e-discovery journey as what was referred to at the time as a discourse analyst, which meant that I was writing search queries that were supposed to generalize across samples of language indicating relevance within documents. And I loved it. I was totally into it. I thought it was the most amazing thing that had ever happened to me. And I ended up staying with H5 for over 13 years. And I got to try all kinds of different stuff over the time. Um, I spent there and toward the end started to focus my attention on the more traditional aspects of e-discovery. So data processing, hosting, production, and I was leading an incredible team of e-discovery operations technicians. But then in 2019, even though it was really hard for me to come to grips with it, I just felt like I needed something a little different and new. And so I decided to leave. And that's when I joined Lighthouse's advisory team, where I now get to lead a fantastic group of consultants and project management professionals. And it's been an absolutely incredible experience. Um, and the best part, though, is that H5 is now Lighthouse. So it's all come full circle. I got to say, it's not often that in the first paragraph introduction of a guest, I find that I have so much and so little in common with a, with a guest. Well, first <laughs> of all, you said like you can't take credit for something. I, as Rob will tell you, I take credit for everything. Okay. Anything that's good, I just take credit for it. And you know this too about me. And the other thing, but then I think, you know, but I feel like I do have stuff in common with Erica. What could that be? I used to sell makeup in Nordstrom's too. You did. How crazy is that? Oh my God. Of course I did. Of course I did. What are you talking about? It's on my LinkedIn profile. Um, let's talk about the defensible disposal of data. This, this is a key challenge. Um, for all, almost every client I speak to that's at the corporate end, it, they're, they're dealing with this. So why do you think this issue persists and how, how has it evolved? Well, I, I mean, I think it all comes down to massive data volumes and ever-growing complexity. You know, we're in the electronic age. We all know that. But our mindset sometimes from a data management perspective can kind of still be stuck in that paper age. And with so many different places that data can be stored electronically, whether it's on-premise or more and more often in the cloud, most businesses' data volumes are growing far faster than they even know. Um, and on top of that, because there's so many different storage locations where data can land, 
and you know it that the same file often shows up in many different places, it's really difficult to understand where everything is or isn't. And folks are understandably often losing track. So if you're going back to that paper mindset where companies often you know, relied on individuals to manage retention of their files, you can see why the current data landscape just isn't amenable to that approach. It's simply too much for individuals to manage on their own. Then to exacerbate the problem, the data explosion started quite a while at this point, and that explosion wasn't exactly a one-time deal. I mean, data volumes have continued exploding, and they're exploding faster and bigger than ever before. And then collaboration tools have become a part of day-to-day function for many organizations. And for a while, we thought, oh, maybe it'll replace email. Well, that's just not the case. It's email and these other things. And so it's a ton of data being being created in and of itself. So we're, we're using it We're using everything we were using before, plus we're using new things. And then there's no slowdowns to any of that. There's more stuff coming online all the time. And then many, so now many companies are recognizing the data boom is is a huge issue and they know something needs to be done, but the problem has become so intimidating that it continues to sit on that to-do list with little or nothing um, done about it. They just don't know where to start. And I think, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the problems is that, you know, no organization set out to keep a bunch of useless information. Right. But at the same time, I think there's really two big risks that everybody is confronted with. One is that you don't want to inadvertently delete something that's important. And if you do start deleting things, you really want to be able to have a defensible you know, process and strategy around it. And because those are both really hard issues, it seems like the default has been that companies just end up holding on to pretty much anything. And I'm just curious about what do you think about this approach? And you know, is, is that really sustainable? Yeah, I think I think you're right that that it's very common, um, and it's really I think it's it really it's it's really easy to convince yourself it's better to just leave everything the way it is rather than risk making a mistake when it comes to data deletion. The whole "if it's not broken, don't fix it" idea can be really appealing, but in reality, you're actually creating more risk for your organization by doing nothing than by doing something. So, in other words, it is broken. And you do need to fix it. The bottom line is that most companies generate far too much data to just let it sit. There's, of course, the cost associated with that. But even more important is the potential risk that just keeps piling up. You know, the more data an organization holds on to, the more exposure it has to legal and regulatory risks. Um, On the legal side, if there's data sitting there that's no longer needed from a legal standpoint, but then later it's still there and something and litigation comes online and now that data is subject to legal hold, the associated cost with first preserving it and then probably having to collect it, review it, produce it can really add up. And then on the regulatory side, if an organization doesn't have a good handle on the data they have and where it sits, this can cause all kinds of challenges. You know, with GDPR, CCPA and all the other regulations that are online or coming online, doing nothing can be viewed as negligence. And the consequences of that are just not someone anyone wants to deal with. Right. So let's talk about some solutions then. So, you know, most of the clients we're dealing with have have at least some data retention policy in place. But how, how do you sort of develop that data retention policy and, and a disposal program? Or how do you update an existing one? Where do you get started? Yeah, if there's nothing in place already, I think the first step really is doing a data mapping. And so understanding what you have and where it is. This is also an important step in up to updating existing policies because of the fact that the data landscape is constantly evolving. It's a, it's entirely possible and pretty likely really that there are new data sources to take into account that you haven't yet covered, even if you do have an existing policy. So revisiting the data mapping and overall disposition policy on a regular basis is really important. Is that something, this, just I don't want to cut you off, but is that something sure. that organizations are doing on their own or are they are they outsourcing that are they uh, and uh, obviously they would have to have some 
um, they would have to have some role in creating the data map because they know where the data is. But does any one person at the organization know where all the data is? And, and or do they outsource this and do they work collaboratively with a third party generally? I mean, it depends. I would say more and more often folks are engaging with external parties simply because it's becoming so big and so complex. It's really difficult for any one person to have all the knowledge that is required to do this stuff successfully. Um, and it's not, like I said, it's not a one-time thing. It's something you need to revisit. Um, and so setting up kind of a, a protocol around that, external um, consultants can be really helpful in helping you establish what the right cadence is, who the right stakeholders are, what the right questions to ask are to make sure things are saying, you know, the way they need to stay because, again, it's just really not a one-time thing. It's something you have to keep an eye on. As part of that, even if, if you're just starting, you know, you want to, you got to identify the disposal targets and the protocols for those targets. And this is something you can't do in a vacuum. It's super important to ensure that there's collaboration and partnership across business groups. And then records management, IT, and legal all need to be at the center of that. And so, with, because of all those players, again, many folks are looking to external consultant teams to help manage all the moving parts. And it's, it's an undertaking that needs a lot of coordination. So you probably want, you know, direct project management involved, your own, and maybe even an external one as well. And you want to ensure that you have the right experts leading the charge. You need folks who are current on the legal and regulatory front, as well as current technologies. And there's, there's a lot of different tools and platforms to choose from. And they can be a really powerful part of your corporate strategy if they're leveraged correctly. And then you also want to make sure everything's tracked and well-documented in case there are questions later. If, for example, disposal is challenged in court, the ability to show a reasonable and consistent process was followed goes over a lot better than being like, mm, I'm not sure what happened with that stuff, you know? So, and separately, of course, documentation is going to be the foundation to developing your internal education programs to ensure that your employees are trained and understand what's going on so that they can be part of the solution. And you want to make sure the program is easily digestible, lays out clear protocols, and especially with respect to what to do if you don't know what to do in a certain situation, you want to make sure you have the right escalation paths in, in place so that those problems are being addressed head on. And then your policies and protocols can be adjusted accordingly so that it doesn't keep coming up as an issue. And Erica, like for companies that have decided to take this step, it seems like there's a couple of potential roadblocks. One is around, you know, challenges with legacy data. And then second, you know, legal holds that are in place for litigation and other things. How are teams wrapping their heads around these challenges and what kind of solutions are you seeing? Yeah, I think the first thing is you want to kind of get at the easy stuff first and then keep chipping away at the other things um, until your entire data landscape is handled. And so to me, the first two pieces are really what definitely needs to stay versus what can definitely go. And really what this is, what you're doing is asking yourself, what do we have on legal hold or what do we have that's subject to retention? Because that needs to be put aside as do not touch for now, right? And then the second is like, well, what's left? What do we have that's either duplicative or just too old to make sense to keep anymore? And once you've taken care of those larger obvious chunks, you can you can start turning to everything else. You can think about leveraging automation to the extent possible because manual approaches tend to break down over time. Again, it relies on individuals and individuals can be can lose track of what they're supposed to be doing. They've got other stuff that's distracting them. So getting the, more of that automation in place to underlie the foundation of your program is going to be helpful and making sure that it stays successful in the long term. So I would think that the it, it would be significant to get um, buy-in buy, uh, buy from your stakeholders. 
um, and, you know, assigning ownership of retention and deletion. And, and with, you know, obviously you're going to find some people that are going to be like, yeah, we don't need to keep everything. We want to get rid of everything. You have other people saying, well, we can't just get rid of stuff. Right. And so there's going to be, there's going to be a, 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 a budding of heads, if you will, or a push and pull on this. So what can leaders do to tackle this? Because there's going to be people that are risk averse and just don't want to get rid of anything. And there's going to be IT people who can say, I just can't keep holding on to everything. Right. Yeah, I think getting support for large undertakings within a corporation often often simply comes down to the dollars. And I think that's true in this case as well. I think, you know, getting folks to understand the importance and and the responsibility around data management, if you can show the business case for it, you've kind of you've kind of you've taken the first major step. At this point, it's true that data storage costs are going down, but unfortunately, the rate at which we're producing data is going up and outpacing that reduction in cost. So you want to make that clear to your leaders. And if you can, you can provide, you know, it's great and very powerful to provide statistics specific to your own organization. So like if you can partner with IT to look at how much data did I have over the past, like five years ago versus now and the associated costs with that, that's, that's great. And then, and then you want to turn to the exposure to litigation regulatory risks that I was mentioning earlier. You know, the, what com- all the risk that comes with holding on to the data that isn't necessary from a business perspective and what that means in terms of potential fines, potential um, concerns from a reputational standpoint, all the things that are somewhat intangible but definitely impact the bottom line. And you'll really, I think, have driven your point home. And Erica, if you again, if a company's made that decision to put together a data disposal and retention policy, it seems like that's something that can't really stay static. I mean, you have technology that's changing. You have all these regulations that you mentioned before that are coming online. How do you keep that current? Yeah, I think so. As part of making that case in the beginning, you definitely need to to establish that it is a, not a one-time um, thing, that it's not a one-and-done sort of situation. And so not only getting the buy-in initially for the fact that it needs to happen at all, but then getting the buy-in to have a governing body around it that then is tasked with regularly meeting and revisiting the policy and making sure that it's staying current, maybe being on like a bi-yearly or yearly cadence at a minimum, potentially even quarterly, depending on how quickly data is moving with a with a corporation or how quickly they're bringing on new technologies you know getting that established up front and then just making sure that it's maintained because it's already established then you'll then i think you have your ticket so this entire month we're obviously celebrating women highlighting women in 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 this space uh throughout the month of march and if you had a a tip for other women in the legal and technology space you know to to both you know not only to get them to a point where where they can put themselves on a path to succeed but to also amplify each other's voices what's that what's that one tip you you would provide to them somebody that sort of led a uh sort of a circuitous route to where you are now where you're leading an entire department doing some really incredibly interesting work. Um, and you, as you took us through before, what's it, what's a tip you would leave them with in, in terms of how, how to navigate, which let's be honest, it, you know, it's just a couple of years ago would have been looked at as an all boys club if it's still not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really easy to fall victim to the idea that you have to shine on your own to be seen and valued, that you have to show how you can handle anything and everything alone, that you don't need anyone's help to be successful and that other people's accomplishments somehow diminish your own. And that just that just really isn't true. It took me a long time to figure that out, um, but it was kind of a game changer once I did. So I think what shows real strength and aptitude is, is to surround yourself with people that are smarter and more accomplished than you are. To 
genuinely open yourself up to their feedback and input. Actively listen and internalize what they have to say. And then offer your own thoughts in return, even when you're afraid you might sound like an idiot. And probably especially then. Um, I think this approach just naturally creates interest in what you have to say. And it has the added bonus of creating a safer place for others to engage as well. So in other words, once you embrace it, it's not all about you, which I know is tough for you, Bill, but I bet you can do it. I'm not comfortable (laughs) with that. Others will start to follow suit, though. And then you've created a space that that's um, for not only your own voice, but for the voices of others as well. And I mean, I can't say this is the right strategy for everyone, Bill, of course, but I feel like it's um, this shift in thinking that really made a difference for me. Personally. Yeah, I, I love the saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, perhaps you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, there's I, a lot I, to I, that. But I, I, I got to tell you, I just, it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough. I get and it. Erica, I understand. Thank, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah no I was, was going to say, surrounding yourself with people who are smarter was almost the alternate name for this podcast. <laughs> but uh, we went with Law and Candor instead. <laughs> you, you've been a great guest. Um, you know, I think the advice that you have, I, I really hope people were listening because I know there's been a lot of years of experience and a lot of work has gone into putting together, putting this together. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining so many great takeaways, but I, I really liked one that you made in the beginning, which is that, you know, we think of deletion of documents as kind of something that's risky, but the fact that you're probably bringing more risk into your organization by not doing something. I think that was a key point today. And um, thanks so much for highlighting that. Yeah, no problem. I think you're exactly right. Thanks Thanks. so much, Erica. Great, great having you on. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you again, listeners, for joining us on yet another podcast. We appreciate your support of Law & Candor, especially as we celebrate Women's History Month. But be sure to subscribe. Talk about this with your friends. Follow us on Twitter for updates and news. Um, We're excited to bring another episode to you.